Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast. Brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. So today's conversation is one I've been wanting to have for quite some time. As regular listeners to the show will know, I'm somewhat concerned about sensorial trends in the book publishing world, things like the rise of so-called sensitivity readers and demands, sometimes successful, more often not thankfully, uh, that publishers not publish or stop publishing books. Uh, There are also the adjacent debates about things like whether someone who is in one demographic group should be able to write about people in another demographic group. And then there's this idea of representation versus endorsement, the question being, can we write about the messy stuff in life, indeed humanize the people who do bad things without endorsing the bad things they do? I decided to finally pull the trigger on this conversation after hearing that Vesper Stamper, an author and illustrator of young adult novels, was game to chat about it. She has a new book coming out next week titled Berliners, which is about a rivalry between two brothers living on opposite sides of the Berlin Wall during the Berlin Wall's construction in the 1960s. And so when I heard from Vesper and her publicist, I thought, this is perfect. Uh, She's a YA author and illustrator. And when I was first hearing about some of these trends in publishing, it was in the context of young adult books. That was in 2017, I believe, when our other guest on today's show, Kat Rosenfield, published an essay in Vulture entitled The Toxic Drama on YA Twitter. I've got it up here for our viewing audience with my notes scribbled in the margins. Kat is an author herself, most recently of the book No One Will Miss Her a 2021 thriller murder mystery novel that takes place in rural Maine. Kat Vesper, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. So I heard through the grapevine that you two actually know each other or maybe friends or something. I I swear before I invited you on the show, I had no idea that you knew each other, but it's a small world, I guess. Yeah, we've been chatting for a bit. (laughs) So I want to start with you, Kat, and your 2017 piece, The Toxic Drama on YA Twitter. What got you interested in what was happening in the publishing world, and in particular uh, on Twitter related to YA novels? Well, I like that her club for men thing. Like, I wasn't just you know interested in YA Twitter. I was also a client. I was also a YA author. I was in that community, um, and so I observed a, a to me very interesting dynamic starting to take hold within YA, starting really um, around 2014, but becoming much more potent and much more acrimonious um, moving into 2016. Uh, the election of Donald Trump really did a number on young adult fiction writers, along with, I guess, basically everybody else in left-leaning spaces. And um, I started to observe that there were these calls for basically censorship coming from inside the house. You had adult uh, authors and, in some cases, adult influencers starting to really come down hard on books that they believe were problematic, which is code for books that offended progressive pieties in some way. Um, And they would kind of whip up these mobs um, against authors whose work they found objectionable. There would be petitions to get the work canceled or to have it forcibly edited. 
And I was just sort of, I mean, discouraged by this as a, an author of young adult fiction, but as a journalist, which I also was at the time, I was sort of fascinated by it. And as I watched one of these um, cancellation campaigns unfolding, I got especially interested in covering it kind of holistically, you know, digging into what happens when somebody decides to go after a book before it's been published. And so I ended up writing for Vulture, um, unpacking sort of as a case study, this campaign against a book called The Black Witch, and during which I talked to people on both sides of the argument to try to understand what was fueling these campaigns and where the conversation was going to go. Now, this, The Black Witch, it's kind of an interesting case study because it's a book, uh, ostensibly an anti-racist book that talks about the stratifications of different people in society and why prejudice is wrong. And then the author, Laurie Forrest, was accused of perpetuating those very prejudices or whitewashing them, I guess, in, in the book herself. So it's it's odd that this would be the subject of one of those campaigns, or is it not? Uh, it's not, really. It's There's so much that goes into one of these campaigns, or, or that did, because the shape of things has changed somewhat over the past five years. But at the time, it was really a miasma of you know professional jealousy and opportunism, um, you know, who was gone after the sort of the status of the author in question was very important. It tended to focus on debut authors who didn't already have an audience and didn't really have a backing people who would stand up for them in the community um, or readers who already liked their books. And then um, as far as the actual content of the book, it just didn't really matter that much. It was more about could this be spun in some way to be problematic? So in the case of Lori Forrest's book, even though this was, yes, a very much an anti-bigotry book in, and the the story focuses on this girl named Lauren who starts out as a member of the sort of privileged oppressor class and then comes to understand her place in society and eventually join the revolution, you know, on behalf of the oppressed. Because she was seen as a stand-in for, um, you know, for a white girl, basically, that was seen as problematic. She was given a redemption arc uh, and it was, there was this kind of, it was even hashtagged at the time, actually, no redemption arcs for racists. So, um and then there was also the fact that her learning came, quote unquote, at the expense of marginalized people. Now, the fact that the marginalized people in question were fictional and also like werewolves and fairies did not matter to anybody. Um, and then this kind of gives you just a snapshot of the, the quality of the dialogue surrounding these books and how sort of unhinged from the get go it could be when it came time to, to try to take somebody down. Let's let's take a step back here. And Kat, if you wouldn't mind uh, moving your collar a little bit, I think it's rubbing against the microphone. Oh, dang. Sorry about that. <laughs> it happens. It happens. Sometimes I just let the guest keep going throughout the entire podcast. And then I spend the whole night awake. Like, why didn't I just mention that the microphone was rubbing the collar? Um, but Vesper, I want to take a step back and talk about what young adult fiction is. When I think of, and I guess it's called YA uh, for short, within the within the community. When I think of young adult fiction, I'm thinking of like The Hatchet, which, which I read uh, when I was in middle school or like the Harry Potter books. Is that right? And is it mostly read by young adults? And why are all these young adults um, spending so much time on Twitter? So I think that Kat would definitely have more of her finger on the pulse of what YA is. I actually come to writing as a whole pretty late. Um, I've been an illustrator for 
almost 25 years now, which I can't really believe, but I came to writing about 10 years ago. Um, and it really found me. It wasn't something that I was looking to do or was interested in doing. It, uh, maybe partly because I was already in the kid lit community as an illustrator, you know, I sort of had a context for it, but um, I kind of fell into writing YA very much by accident. And so there's been a lot of learning on the job in terms of what this atmosphere really is and what this community really is. And I still am not sure that I really understand, but I can only speak for myself that um, I'm I'm writing with teenagers in mind, but I'm also aware that roughly half my audience are also are adults. So I have very much the concerns of, first of all, a mother of teenagers um, writing, you know, what, what are the kinds of books that I want my kids to have? What are the kinds of books that my kids are asking me for? Um, and so, you know, but having a lot of uh, ethical considerations in mind as I'm writing as well, because I'm, I'm very much aware that I'm writing for other people's children that I don't have to raise. You know, so I don't want to add to the mess, but I also want to, I want to open up worlds. I want to offer tools of navigation to kids, you know, that are coming of age. So these are all things that are, you know, on front of mind for me. So is a demographic like teenagers and maybe people in their early twenties? Cause when I, um, Kat, when I was reading your piece, uh, one of the people who was leading the campaign against the black witch, uh, was named Shauna Sinyard. And she was a blogger who wrote, writes primarily about, YA and was a bookstore employee. So presumably she was a bit older. Um, and it sounds like if I'm remembering your piece correctly, uh, a lot of the people who participate in the discussion surrounding this, uh, this literature are also older. Yeah, that's actually very essential um, to what makes it so bonkers in a lot of ways is that this is not being driven by young adult readers. Um, and in many cases, it's not even be driven, being driven by young adults at all. It's being driven by not so young, even middle-aged adults, um, which is, you know, the, the ones that are in the community who are writing the books, um, you know, who have reasons well beyond altruistic concern for young readers to want to... Um, kick certain authors off the playing field. So, so is it, um, professional jealousy then, or what, what, or is it virtue signaling? What is it that is, are leading these campaigns? Cause the sub, the subhead to your article is young adult books are being targeted in intense social media call call outs, draggings, pylons, sometimes before anyone's even read it. This is a kind of prescient of the sort of call out cancel culture that has uh, captured the popular imagination in, in recent years. I mean, what's what's driving it? Um, well, when it comes to YA, I think that you're you're right that this has emerged into the mainstream. And the reason why it should have been YA first is that um, young adult content tends to be kind of an early um, uh, petri dish for incubating moral panics. If you can kind of talk about harm being done to some hypothetical vulnerable young person who's going to read the wrong book or play the wrong video game and be harmed in some way, it's very easy to whip up a, a lot of fear and outrage from there and allow it to kind of come down the pike into the mainstream culture. And I think that's um, why this was happening there so much earlier than it was happening, you know, more broadly in young, um, sorry, in adult fiction and in uh, genre fiction, which it's now started to bleed into. So Vesper, um, you've got a book coming out next week, Berliners. What's, 
the process of getting a book published right now, especially a young adult book? Do, has any of the concerns that have led to the stuff that Kat was writing about um, come through the publishing process, at least from the art author's vantage point at this point? Like the, uh, and, and we've got Kat's dog there saying hello. <laughs> um, like, are you having sensitivity readers or are you reading your own manuscript looking for any potential word or phrase or sentence that can be taken out of context and result in some of these draggings or pylons or demands that your book uh, be censored or not published or, or what have you. I mean, what's the process like now? Because I, I work with my boss, Greg Lukianoff, on a number of books. He's written three over the past decade. Um, and some of these conversations weren't present early on with some of his earlier books. Um, but I recall that with his latest book, Coddling the American Mind, uh, there was very much a conscious effort to have it read from some of um, the potential critics' points of view, which isn't always a bad thing. Um, but I think it becomes a bad thing if that criticism uh, and how it's addressed isn't the author's decision, uh, which I think is some of the consequences of, of the sort of trends that we've, we're discussing in the Twitter space. Yeah, I, I want to come at this from a a backdoor of like what of something that you just said. So the process of me writing my first novel, I wrote it in grad school and I I happened to start grad school in 2014, which is what which is the year that Greg and Jonathan Haidt talk about this big sea change coming in education. And you know, I got my illustration degree back in the late 90s. And I'm, you know, I'm a native New Yorker. I, you know, I've gone to art school my whole life. Um, this, this should have been my safest environment, you know, um, where I, th where I knew the ropes, you know, and I found that uh, I was being blindsided constantly by younger students who were very, very interested in censorship. And as an artist coming of age in the nineties, this was like anathema to me, you know, like we went through the whole Newt Gingrich and moral majority and, you know, all of that stuff. And, uh, in one of my writing classes, I remember, um, we had to write a piece on, um, on censorship of, of some campaign that was going on, um, on the, on the public buses in New York. And I was really shocked that some of my class classmates were literally calling for curtailments on the first amendment. Um, and they they wanted a Canadian style censorship model. And I, I just I couldn't even believe it. And it became really apparent to me, I would say within the first three weeks of being in grad school, that if I made a false move or if I kind of operated in my sort of freewheeling, you know, groovy artist 90s way, um, that there was a distinct possibility that my own classmates would call for me to be expelled from the program. I, I felt this pressure. It was un, it was an unspoken thing, but it was definitely present. I don't think the faculty would have gone for it, but I think, you know, there were thing there was buzzing about in the studio that was that was kind of like that. So into that environment, I wrote my first book, which was about the Holocaust, and it was purely a passion project, a personal thing that I wanted to do, and I was kind of naively walking into this thing, thinking that it was all about the literature. <laughs> and so I had a very good experience writing that book. It got picked up by Knopf right away. Um, I had- What was the name a, of the book? Uh, what the Night Sings. 
and the, and the book did very well. And uh, in terms of sensitivity readers, my um, I come from a Jewish background and my editor was an Orthodox Jewish woman. And so she told me that she was basically acting as my sensitivity reader. I mean, obviously, when you're writing about something as sensitive as the Holocaust, you want to make sure that you're speaking about it responsibly and that you know the history and you know your your facts are proper, um, and that and that there are a lot of ethical considerations, uh, you know, just in terms of representing the history and the story and the characters that you're that you're telling. So that was a very good experience. And then my second novel, also great. It came out during the pandemic, you know, which had its own issues. But I remember I, I had my first review in which the skin color of my characters was discussed. And it had to do with my illustrations. Um, and I, I forget who the reviewer was, but they said, uh, Stamper depicts the main character, main char- character's skin as the white of the page, which is interesting to call out in a book about 14th century England. Um, but also to me, I, you know, uh, knowing about the uh, different ethnicities within England, even at that time, I was actually depicting a character of mixed heritage. Um, so it, it was it was interesting to have these kind of gatekeepers. Well, when you say gatekeepers, did you just find it odd that they were calling that out, or did they call it out with any sort of implied criticism? They didn't. They called it out as this very kind of matter of fact thing, but it was it was odd coming after a very positive review that just kind of ended bluntly in this statement. That was the last sentence of the review. And I just remember thinking, first of all, in in the illustrations, it was completely a design choice to leave the skin as the white of the page. I mean, I was working in black and white. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but it, it, to me, it felt like it, um, it, it was a gut punch in the, in the world of the book that I was creating, you know? Um, I just wanted to interject something when you were talking about how you, you weren't sure which uh, outlet this was. I would bet that it was Kirkus, and I would bet that this was the result of this policy that they implemented briefly, although I'm not sure if they're not doing it, I'm not sure if they're doing it anymore, but they were. Um, very explicitly in every young adult fiction review, it was a policy, an editorial policy to mention the races of the characters. Um, and if the races of the characters weren't mentioned to assume usually that they were white um, and they often did this erroneously. And I'm not sure if maybe that's, they've stepped back from that because they did it so many times that it became embarrassing for them, but it really became the lens through which reviewers at that publication at least were expected to engage with young adult literature. Why, why does it matter? I mean, race matters, exactly. obviously, but like, <laughs> why would you have a policy of mentioning the race of the characters? Do you think it has to do, Kat, with uh, school and library, maybe with um, with librarians and educators trying to choose to, you know, to diversify their lists in their classrooms? It's entirely possible that that's the reason why, you know, that in a, amid a quest to, sorry, I've got a cat agitating on my lap, buddy. No, it's all right. <laughs> another, I, I, we invited a third guest. Uh, doesn't speak, but cat and very cat. much present. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, been, he's been making a lot of noise, but hopefully it's not picking up in the microphone. Um, so uh, now I've lost my train of thought. What were we talking about? Well, we were talking about how Kirkus is. Oh, right. Uh, so maybe this was a, a discussion of race. Yeah. So maybe this was a question of helping librarians who wanted to diversify their collections to do that more easily. But 
in execution, what it really turned into was what felt like this sort of explicit targeting of books as being as featuring white characters and hence being bad, uh, more like morally That's how it bad. Felt. Yeah. That's how it felt. Yeah. And and I was and my question was, well, what the heck am I supposed to do? I'm writing about the Middle Ages. Um, would you like me to talk about how the Phoenicians were trading tin uh, three or four thousand years ago in Britain? I mean, I could write that book too, but that's not the purview of this book. Well, Kat, you talk in your in your piece um, about some of the criticism that Laurie Forrest got for being um, a white author talking about bigotry and prejudice, um, and you see this broader discussion about content creators, whether they're filmmakers or authors, uh, writing about the experiences of others. Uh, and it could be other, you know, another sex, another race, um, another religion, uh, and getting criticism for doing so. Um, the idea being that these stories should be told by people who are members of, of, uh, of the group. Um, but then you also, it feels like, get this criticism on the other side, where if if you don't do that, then you're not fully representing um, America or the world. So it's like you can't win. That, <laughs> it that feels does like. seem to be the case, doesn't it? You're damned, you know, irrespective of what you do. And it's interesting, yeah, that Lori Forrest came under fire because, I mean, if we're following these rules to their logical conclusion – then the only person who could write a story about a, a white or white uh, coded person realizing, you know, their privilege in society and confronting that and then becoming a better person would be a white person. But, you know, these, the thing about these rules is that um, they're sort of applied indiscriminately um, and inconsistently uh, so that whatever it is that the, the, group in question, or usually the individual in question, um, is, you know, whatever you're trying to get them to do or not do, that's how the rules work. Um, it's all very kind of Calvin ball. Yeah. My, uh, my boss, Greg likes to call it the perfect rhetorical fortress where it's like, you can never actually make, um, an argument cause there's always an argument for why you can't make the argument. That's usually ad hominem. Um, but Kat, in your piece, you talk about how a lot of these efforts to get these books or prevent these books from being published are unsuccessful. Um, this is 2017. Um, we've bantied around the word, word censorship, um, which can be used colloquially to discuss private actors um, making efforts to have some sort of speech or expression not presented to a wider audience if it otherwise would be. Um, a lot has changed since 2017, um, and I and I've seen uh, reports since then of things of books successfully being dropped. Um, Simon and Schuster drops Milo Yiannopoulos. There's the whole Woody Allen debacle. I mean, all these people have uh, histories, of course. But then there's also Random House not publishing um, a compilation of Norman Mailer's um, essays um, based reportedly on a junior staffer's objection to the title of uh, a mailer essay from 1957 titled The White Negro. Um, so you see it not in within the YA context, but has it started to actually have an effect in YA? I was struck by how the publishers in the YA context in 2017 in your piece just told their authors to keep their heads down. Um, and that was kind of the 
countercom strategy um, is to just ignore it. What happens on Twitter um, is separate from like what happens in the real world. You hear that phrase often bandied about Twitter isn't the real world. So, I mean, when I talk about this being a concern of mine, it's based on isolated uh, anecdotes. It's based on essays like your piece, um, which at the conclusion suggests that there's pushback and that there's nothing happening. Um, so are there things happening now? Oh, <laughs> like, God. Where, where do we stand? I regret to inform you that the hopeful note on which that essay ended in 2017 did not really pan out. Um, things have changed. And I've actually, I was recently um, looking into this subject again for another piece that I was working on. And what I found was that whereas these campaigns used to take the form of public mobbings instigated very shortly before publication, so at a point at which it was too late to change the story, by one person who may have read the book, um, but who had an axe to grind, who then whipped up a whole bunch of people who hadn't read the book into a frenzy for cancellation. Now, these campaigns have moved inside the publishing houses. Publishers have become concerned about this. They are taking steps during the process of the, the acquisition of manuscripts and the editing of manuscripts to try to mitigate angry reactions on Twitter. They're not being necessarily all that successful at this. Um, there's still, you'll see... Like, what do they do? What do they do to sort yeah, of mitigate? Yeah, okay. So there are, in some cases, it's become institutionalized in the form of things like sensitivity reads. But there's also a sort of an informal but very visible to people in this world, especially to authors, um, kind of culture now surrounding what is being published, what authors and agents are looking for. So as for as many people as you have already going through the editorial process and having their work, um, I was about to say gutted, let's say um, <laughs> adjusted, <laughs> adjusted um, by sensitivity readers, you have many, many more who are observing the landscape, who are observing that um, authors and, uh, sorry, editors and agents are basically calling explicitly for books by marginalized people or books that center marginalized communities, which of course you're only allowed to write if you're a marginalized person. And they're either not getting through the door um, because you know editors and agents are selecting for diversity amongst authors and diversity in content in a way that doesn't allow those books to be published, or they're observing the landscape and deciding that it's just not worth trying at all um, because they don't think that they have a shot. Whether that's correct or not is definitely having an impact upon what's being submitted and what's being published. Well, do these sensitivity readers, can they call the shots on a book or on a manuscript? I mean... It depends. Um, so I, I have heard, unfortunately, I, I've not been able to get um, the, the folks about who these, who these stories focused on. Sorry, we've got a cat issue here again. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to keep him from showing his behind to the camera because that would be like repulsive. Um, so uh, I haven't been able to get these people to speak to me directly, but I have heard secondhand about authors whose books were canceled because a sensitivity, uh, excuse me, sensitivity reader, it's a difficult phrase to say, took offense to the content of their book and decided it was unsalvageable. Um, and of course, authors who have this happen to them aren't likely to speak up in public because to do so is akin to admitting that your book was too racist or sexist to see the light of day. And nobody really wants that stain on them, even tangentially. I, I, I sometimes wonder 
if sensitivity readers were in place in the late 80s when Salman Rushdie uh, sought to publish the Satanic Verses, whether the book would have ever gotten published in the first place. Um, the idea being, obviously, that certain communities, as we have learned, uh, would be offended by it, and the publishing house wouldn't have come to Rushdie's defense. Um, I, I think it's probably likely that they wouldn't. I, I want to just say a note on Salman Rushdie's behalf, uh, if I may. Of course, please. <laughs> that um, I recently, you know, after that, after his, um, after he was stabbed, uh, you know, he's somebody who I've followed for a long time, his story, even though I hadn't read his work. So I decided to go and start reading the Satanic Verses um, just out of curiosity. And I haven't had a more thrilling and pleasurable reading experience in many, many years. I, after the, you know, the first session of sitting down with that book, I literally felt high. It was so amazing to have an artistic experience like that in literature. It was just amazing. So you like, you like the magical realism that he writes with. I see. I tried to read, I tried to read what was his uh, midnight's children. I just couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But I, I, that's that sort of writing is always always messes with my brain. I know mm-hmm. people love it and you love it, but it's like mm-hmm. watching a Wes Anderson film for me. It's like just too weird. It just breaks my breaks my psyche. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, you know, I come to writing as a reader. I guess that as everybody does, right? Uh-huh. But I think that all of this, you know, begs the question. I don't want to derail the, the conversation because I still want to talk about sensitivity readers too. But, um. The question is, what is literature and what is it for? What is art and what is it for? You know, and I don't, I don't subscribe to the the concept of literature that it exists to be agitprop or to be activism. I just that definition of art to me, and I think you know, historically, having seen how artists can be co opted um, for different regimes and different causes uh, unto, unto destruction. You know, I have a very hair trigger, um, kind of response to that. Yeah. Well, that's one of my concerns about some of these trends. Um, it's just going to make reading less fun, less interesting. Uh, if you think of fiction in particular as giving you a window into the life of someone else, um, and giving you perspective on your own life, the idea being, People are messy, as I said at the top. Um, we do good things. We do bad things. Uh, we do them for mixed reasons. Um, and fiction often tries to humanize uh, the experience, um, tries to give you a window into why people do the things that they do. Um, and if trying to humanize people who, like all of us, live messy lives um, is, in effect, an endorsement of doing those things, uh, there, you have cat one person in your piece who um, is quoted as saying, the simple fact that a book contains repugnant ideas is not in itself, in my opinion, a reason to condemn it. Literature has a long history as a place to confront our ugliness, and its role in provoking both thought and change in thought is a critical one. I mean, if it's just agitprop, right? If it's just, um, I don't know all sunbeams and rainbows, it's just not going to be interesting reading, I don't think. But maybe or I'm writing. wrong. I, I mean, I can't even imagine sitting down to write something like that. It just, it sounds intensely boring. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I feel like um, 
you know, I just wonder all the books you, you mentioned, the agents who aren't accepting books. I just wonder, we talk about censorship um, and people are often asking for anecdotes. Okay, well, you know, give me one example. And there are examples, of course. Um, Which are never good enough for the people asking for the examples. No, of course not. <laughs> of course not. But you don't, you don't see all the books that never get written, right? Because, and, and Kat, you have someone in your piece who, um, I'm trying to find, I wrote it down but was thinking about writing a book, um, but just, oh, here it is. She also scrapped a work in, this is a New York Times bestselling author, I believe. Uh, she also scrapped a work in progress that featured a POC character, citing a sense shared by many publishing insiders that to write outside one's own identity as a white author simply isn't worth the inevitable backlash. She's quoted as saying, I was told, do not write that. I was told, spare yourself. Like, is that an example? It's just a book that doesn't get written because people don't want to deal with it. And uh, my sense is that within the publishing world in particular, the reason you're, you're starting to see books actually not get published or contracts get dropped is they're afraid of being called a racist or a sexist or whatever ist you want to call it. There's no, how do you fight that? Right. Uh, especially when that's like the most, the worst thing you could be called today. Yeah. I mean, people are very, I think, cavalier and kind of contemptuous about that line of argument, even though I think it's quite compelling. Which line of argument? Um, yeah. That, you know, that there's a chilling effect on writers in general, um, you know, that this isn't just about the, the very public campaigns to cancel books that are being published that have already been written. It's also about what doesn't get through the door um, or what doesn't get written at all. And, um, you know, the there's this sort of very sneering dismissal of that um, from a lot of the folks who are sort of agitating for this type of censorship. And, um, you know, they, they say things like, oh, well, maybe your book just isn't that good or whatever. Like, if you're so afraid to write it, maybe you're just not really a very good writer, um, you know, which I guess is, is predictable. But at the same time, if, um, you know, it was the 90s and somebody was trying to talk about how they would like to write a book where, for instance, um, a young woman has premarital sex and then doesn't like get pregnant and die as a result. And, you know, they couldn't get that through the door. You know, we would be very sympathetic to that. We would say, well, that's not right. That story should have room to exist. If somebody wanted to write a book that was, um, you know, really dark or really gay or really violent or all three, um, you know, and, and they were having trouble getting that through the door, or they were afraid of being censored for that we would be sympathetic to that. We'd say that book should have room to exist on the shelf. There should be a place for that because that sounds like a good story. And I think people have really kind of abandoned the principled commitment to seeing a diversity, a literal diversity, a real diversity of stories and of storytellers on shelves because of this sense that the culture war has been won and all of the stuff that we, um, you know, on the progressive side, all the stuff we like is now getting through the door. So who cares about the stuff that's not? Yeah. You, you have a hard time imagining this argument in the 1980s, right? When the PMRC was going after Prince and Twisted Sister, um, the idea being that there was some sort of moral outrage associated with it. Um, Vesper, I was just thinking back, we were talking about Rushdie, and I was thinking again about Kat's piece and how a lot of the backlash came from people who had never read the book, right? Because the book wasn't out yet. Um, and that happened with Salman Rushdie, too. And I'm also thinking, uh, have you guys been following that? Um, I forget how to pronounce her name, Meg Smaker. She did that documentary that Jihadi Rehab. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's the new title for it, I guess, <laughs> because it was Jihad Rehab. Um, and 
how a lot of people who were protesting against a, her film, which is about um, former Gitmo inmates, if I'm not mistaken, kind of rehabbing their lives. Um, and a lot of the criticisms that we're discussing in the context of book publishing were levied against her, the idea that she's not, I guess, uh, <laughs> former jihadist or um, um, or Muslim, which is it? Is, is a weird kind of way to look at it or um, she's not or the idea that inmates can't um, be interviewed uh, with full consent because they're inmates um, eschewing the fact that the majority of people that she reached out to declined to be <laughs> interviewed um, uh, former inmate uh, number of the inmates she, she but anyway I mean after the backlash um, from including many people who had never actually seen the film, uh, the films can't get distribution. So I, I f a lot of it just s seems to be virtue signaling. Um, their tribe says something about one of these books, but they never engage with it on the merits. And I guess that can be to, to be expected. I mean, you see it on Twitter all the time. They read a headline, but not the actual work. Um, nonetheless disappointing. I mean, I just want to kind of bring this back to the question of what this means for fiction writers. You know, it's not just about, I mean, once you start bringing identity into it in this way, for someone like Vesper, who writes historical fiction, what's she supposed to do? You know, uh, who nobody left alive has lived the experiences that are being documented in many of these books. So imagination is all that's available. I mean, imagination augmented by research, but still, um, you know, taken to its logical conclusion, this is a way of uh, looking at art that eventually precludes the possibility of writing fiction altogether. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think um, when you're talking about a historical period where you are talking about different people groups, well, there's a there are myriad experiences within that one people group. So to have something like, oh, there's like consensus within this demographic that this is how the experience was, you know, is, is just ridiculous and would be an incredibly boring story to read. You know, it, it's precisely putting characters under extreme pressure that yields interesting story arcs because, it, you know, when we read fiction, we read ourselves into every single character in that book, not just the protagonist. And we don't just read ourselves into the good characters and not the evil characters. And we also all know that, you know, a one-sided villain is incredibly boring to read. We want to read about complexity and, you know, diversity of human experience, not just diversity of somebody's, you know, external features. Can, can you talk a little bit about Berliners? Because you say it has some sort of, you know, some intersection with the free expression issues that we're talking about here. I mean, I, I can only imagine, right? It's about East and West Berlin, um, uh, open and closed societies. I mean, I could probably talk for three hours about it, so but I'll try to condense it to this one aspect. But uh, so it's a sequel from of What the Night Sings. So my first book was about the post-Holocaust, the post-liberation experience of Jewish teenagers uh, rebuilding their lives after after this tragedy. So, you know, I tried to cover you know, a range of experiences among Jewish survivors, but then it inevitably begs the question, well, what happened to all the perpetrators? And what is the Germany that we're dealing with today? You know, the modern Germany. And how did the war directly lead into this split between East and West. 
And what I discovered was that these two sectors, let's say, the Soviet sector and the Western sector, had completely different uh, approaches to reckoning with their country's past. And so, you know, there's there's the the approach of denial on the East German side, and there's the approach of a very messy kind of uh, open reckoning on the Western side. Why would you have the denial on the Eastern side and not on the Western side among like the, the residents? Yeah, because there was this kind of like Hegelian Trump triumphalism about the fact that the communists had liberated Germany and that they had defeated fascism, had defeated anti-Semitism, um, that they were the victors and they were bringing this new utopian model to bear for the for the new Germany. And so that kind of narrative, it, it had to suppress uh, the reality of any former Nazis in their ranks. It had to suppress their own purges of Jews from high-ranking positions within the Communist Party. It, it just had to. And so what you find is that by 1961, there were only a thousand Jews left in East Germany because the conditions had become so intolerable. Huh. So where did, where did they go? They went to the, they went to West, uh, West Berlin. Uh, I mean, all over emigrated different places or yeah, went to, went to the and, West. While they still could, I'm assuming, right? Cause then the, the Berlin wall went up and you couldn't escape. I mean, well, I don't know my, my history. Well, sure. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ostensibly. That's ostensibly, ostensibly right. Yeah. Uh, did, now, did you have any of these sort of issues when you were at least thinking about or writing or th- getting the book published, the, the issues that we talk about here? I mean, I have to say, um, you know, to Knopf's credit, they've been very good to me. I've had a very, very good experience with Knopf. Um, I think it's very much down to my editor, Karen Greenberg, who was very supportive and, um, you know, understood what I was trying to do in the work. Um, it, later on in the process of writing Berliners, when it came time heading toward copy editing, uh, I did have a sensitivity reader because I have, and this this will be interesting for our conversation, I have exactly one African-American character in the book. And that's not because I couldn't make up more. <laughs> Um, it's specifically because I wanted to talk about the subject of of tokenizing. Um, and I was also trying to explore these uh, different civil rights, um, different responses to the post-war situation in the world, right? So you wouldn't have had the civil rights movement in America without uh, what happened in World War II and without the fact that we had a segregated army. So all of these things, you know, once the world became aware of what had happened in the Holocaust, which really didn't happen until the 1960s on a public scale, um, then these kinds of reckonings could start to happen. Um, but because I had this one black character, you know, the the fear was, you know, was I going to be accused of tokening? And, um, and so we had a sensitivity reader. Well, that actually wound up being a positive experience for me. And it had nothing to do with what the reader brought to the, the subject of race. Uh, by and large, the person had no problems with what, with what I was saying, but there was a certain plot point that I had missed. And this person called it out and it made the book better. So, I, you know, just just having another pair of eyes on it as a reader was really, but but in terms of the sensitivity issue, um, sorry, I just heard a glitch. Was Oh, no, that was just me. Uh, uh 
<laughs> trying to interject uh, inappropriately, of course. You can finish your thought. Sorry. Um, but I, I had another um, – well, I'll let you interject, but there's another you know, sort of point on the sensitivity front that I, I'd love to – Well, this is on the uh, – my question is on the sensitivity front. I mean, what is the mandate that is given to a sensitivity reader? Because often if you're telling them to go in and look for things that might be uh, insensitive or offensive, mm -hmm. they're going to find it, right? It's well, right. Um, and um, – well, right. And thankfully, this reader did not. Yeah. The like, you yeah. You, you, you think. Just Publishers that. Weekly did. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. After the fact. <laughs> I, I would love to jump in here to talk a little bit more about sensitivity readers and, and the sort of um, the line between a sensitivity reader reading for offensiveness versus a sensitivity reading for subject matter expertise, because there is a little bit of overlap there. Sure. Um, and the latter know, would could be helpful. Yes, yes. exactly. It's, a, and, it's you know, a paid additional reviewer to help see things you miss. Exactly. You know, um, you know, I mean, I've worked as a sensitivity reader, um, you know, to offer a, a female perspective on a book. And that was a case where I was reading for offense and I kind of hated the entire experience. And I, I, as I was doing it, I really had to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's completely unlike me. Um, and it was like, okay, you know, if I were an incredibly easily offended person, what would I find problematic about this? And eventually it became a very depressing exercise because as many things as I could call out and say, well, you should probably fix this, that the person I was pretending to be would always find something else, right? But at the same time, um, you know, as Vesper was noting, there are ways in which um, a sensitive rendering and an accurate rendering overlap. You know, if you've missed something that would have been salient to that experience, um, it's important to be able to, to, to get it in there because it makes the book better. Um, and, you know, for me, I come at this from the perspective of, I write about crime, I write murder books. And um, so I do consult police officers and, uh, you know, and medical examiners and so on for my work, not because I'm worried about being insensitive, but because I'm worried about putting something completely unbelievable into the book. Um, the, I think the difference when it comes to the role of a sensitivity reader versus a subject matter expert is that uh, a sensitivity reader will you know, in their sort of most um, like offenditron mode will presume to tell you what your characters are thinking and feeling as though they know that better than you do as the author who created them. And, you know, as a, as a, an author myself, I find that very objectionable as a reader. I find it really objectionable. Um, you know, a, a sensitivity reader who's telling you how to make your story more authentic or more accurate um there's always got to be that veto, you know, where you can say, well, this may be inaccurate, but it serves the story better um, for me to make it like this instead of like that. Now, do they do these sensitivity readers? I've never been a part of the process. Do they get paid? Yes, presumably? but not very much. And that's sort of a key thing about how they became such a part of the publishing process, because amid the sort of great diversity reckoning that was happening within publishing, which is very white and very, very upper class. Um, and female. And, and female. Yeah, that too. Uh, it's a bunch of upper middle class white ladies. Um, that's what it is. <laughs> I feel like this is very the pot calling the kettle black. And yet, um, so, you know, when they were having this great diversity reckoning and people were starting to realize how incredibly homogenous publishing is, they were able to hire like a thousand sensitivity readers at 200 bucks a pop 
for, you know, to proofread manuscripts for sensitivity and say, look at all of the people of color we're employing and it costs them nothing. What, what should we, what should we call these trends? Right. I, I mentioned that these are private companies. They're authors who can take their manuscript and leave or succumb to the new process, um, and get their book published potentially. Uh, Kat, in your piece, you quote someone who said the idea that it shouldn't be in the public atmosphere, that these books shouldn't be in the public a- atmosphere. I find it extremely funny that people don't think that's censorship. Uh, I mean, do you both think of it as censorship or is this more, do you kind of bristle at calling it censorship or should we think of it as like artistic freedom? I, it's you know, totally I, censorship. I'm sorry. But if you're on Twitter, people will say it's not. They'll yeah, say but, it's like, they'll well, say, oh, Twitter. this is a, what is you know. Twitter? Why do we, I'm sorry, but why do we give these people authority who can only express themselves in 280 characters? What what is what is the credentialism here? Are they authorities? Are they have they studied the the subjects? Have they studied the the subjects that the authors are writing about? Are they writers themselves? What is it? I don't even. I'm I'm not on Twitter, thank God. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, stay away. Oh God, <laughs> no intention. I have no intention of going back. It's whoa. It's, it's funny you say that because you know I work. <laughs> I do First Amendment stuff um, and often at the center of culture wars. And for 10 years at FIRE, I led our communications department. And often something would be blowing up on Twitter. And our staff is very attuned to what's happening on Twitter. So it had this perception that the world was exploding. Uh, But you could go ask 100 people on the side of the street if they were aware of what was happening on Twitter. And 100 out of 100 of them would say, no. So I, oh, I was constantly, as part of my job, trying to remind people that you know this latest outrage um, isn't as big as it might seem uh, because you all um, are within like the thinker space, which tends to live on Twitter. Uh, it's also the reason that I um, can kind of get away with putting out content that's a little bit more fun on Instagram and TikTok because I know that our lawyers, for example, aren't on Twitter and aren't going to be policing it as closely. Uh, but yeah, and Kat, you you have this in your piece. I mean, you talk about how th- most of the buyers of these books aren't on Twitter and are uninterested in the blowups that are happening there. Right. Well, this has never been a reader-driven phenomenon. Um, and on the, on the one hand, you know, do we want to give people on Twitter the authority to determine what is or is not censorship? No. You know, these people, their, their voices should not be worth more than somebody else's just because they happen to be capable of making a lot of noise in this one space. On the other hand, discounting Twitter, I think is also a mistake because for better or for worse, this is the one social media platform on which people who drive the national discourse are disproportionately represented. Um, Everybody in publishing, everybody in media, everybody in academia, everybody in the arts, every place that culture is being created, all those people are on Twitter and they're all asking for censorship and then calling it not censorship. So, I mean, that's a problem. It's a complicated problem, but I think to disregard it in the sense that like, you know, as Dave Chappelle said, Twitter is not a real place, as satisfying as it might be to just kind of write it off in that sense. um, I think that by refusing to engage with it on those grounds, it just allows it to take deeper and deeper root and to then, you know, kind of affect what, what's being made, what's being written. Well, I, I I apologize then for not being on Twitter and not help, you know helping to be part of. If the I were your publicist, there. I'd be saying get on Twitter. 
but I'm not. But I think that just, you know, at the end of the day, I'm an artist and I have to live as an artist that is doing the things that feel uh, like, like I'm working with the most integrity. And, you know, years ago I was a touring musician and uh, we got written up in, you know, all the big publications and stuff and pitchfork and whatever. And mo- most of the, most of the reviews were great. You know, it was fine. We could go on our merry way, but every now and then we'd get a bad review and my husband would just, you know, he couldn't handle it. It was just, it would wreck his day. And I would just kind of think about the fact that I had two toddlers running around my feet at home, you know, and here I am like strapping my daughter in the baby Bjorn and getting up on stage and singing with her like on me. And like, this was really friggin' hard work, you know? And I wanted to make the music and I wanted to make the art that was meaningful to me. And I was going to do it no matter what anybody said. And PS, those people were not cleaning up the baby poop at home with me. So they did not have any bearing on the art that I made or how I was going to live my life. And I, you know, it's become a different environment. You know, obviously Twitter was not around then, um, but it still stands, you know, at the end of the day, if somebody drags me on Twitter or, you know, whatever, it doesn't affect my life and it doesn't affect the art that I'm going to make. And that's the end of the story for me. Well, unless it affects your livelihood, right? I mean, for some well, people, their art is their livelihood. And yes. And you have and to that make is a choice. A, and that is a consideration. That is something that I'm actively thinking about. You know, how do I proactively create other revenue streams for myself? And thankfully, because I'm an illustrator, I do have some diversification there. Um, but so, you know, I do understand that, that aspect of things. But even before the livelihood ha- has to come the peace of mind and the, the the inner peace, you know, that allows you to even want to create something in the first place. It can't be that part of the artist's life cannot be market driven. Well, we were talking about the Twitter space, right? And um, we at FIRE like to advocate for a culture of free speech, the kind of culture where people feel free and are free um, legally to be who they are and to speak their minds. And within the progressive left that's on Twitter, there's a lot of hay made right now, uh, and in many cases rightfully so, about book bans, right? Um, But in the same vein, many of them, I think, if I were to have a conversation with them, wouldn't see this, this trends that we're discussing today that that seek to alter the art that artists are creating or uh, that prevent artists' books from coming into being or having their contracts dropped. They wouldn't see that as a book ban, and I know that because I, you know, we talk about J- Dave Chappelle getting dropped um, from a venue in Minneapolis after tickets are, have already been sold to an artist, and people say, "Oh, that's just consequence, cult- consequence culture, not cancel culture, right? It's not censorship. It's a private venue, parallels to the private publisher, making a choice after hearing feedback, after people express." their right uh, that you know express themselves and why they don't think it should um be in the public domain you know it's just that's how the marketplace of ideas work and these ideas lost and these people um these people's art shouldn't be available to a willing audience audience so like i in i don't know do you see do you see it as book banning 
Um, well, I see a, a fundamental contradiction in your argument where, you know, I mean, obviously you're articula articulating this on behalf of somebody else, but it, it kind of um, reveals how confused it is where it's like, on the one hand, you have a willing audience who wants to pay to consume whatever the art is. And on the other hand, you have the claim that the marketplace of ideas has won. And so, you know, nobody should be able to access this art. I think you can have one or the other. Yeah, um, right. You know, the, if, if, uh, if there's a market for it, then, you know, that de facto makes it a winner in the marketplace of ideas. Um, I think that the book banning conversation is so complicated and that's very much due to the fact that in the digital age and because of the replicability of digital media, what we think of as a book ban where access to the content in question is, is restricted to the point where people cannot get it it's just not possible anymore. That's like an extinct creature. What we have now are various attempts to remove books from a classroom reading list or a school library. Um, sometimes on the other side, we have attempts to uh, press publishers not to publish a book that they were planning on publishing, or we have um, pressure on somebody like Amazon to not stock a title. And depending on which side politically you're on, you'll tend to say that some of these things are book bans and the others are just, yeah, consequence culture or the market at work. Um, and then it'll be completely the inverse if you go on to the other side. Um, I think that if we're going to reimagine book banning as any action that restricts the availability of a title in any context, then we at least need to open up that conversation so that we're not pretending that it's only people on the right who do this, because it's really not. Um, I mean, even in the context of school libraries, for every parent group that is agitating to have a book removed because it's uh, you know too gay or too violent or too violently gay, um, you also have librarians quietly every single year going through their collections and weeding out books that they consider racist or sexist or otherwise promoting outdated values. And nobody talks about that as though it's banning. Then it's just curating. Um, and so... I think, you know, for the conversation to move forward for and it for it to for it to be intellectually consistent and valuable in any way, we really need to allow for either a very narrow and consistent definition of book banning or a very broad and very consistent definition of book banning. Well, I wish some of the ethos that uh, was brought to bear on the book banning conversation, the idea that this is bad because it's restricting a piece of work to a broader willing audience <clears throat> was brought to bear on, on more types of expression, right? Um, what, it, what is in a book? I mean, it's, uh, I think John Milton called it the, the master spirit of an author, right? Um, it's, it's, it's a message that's transmitted, either a fictional or a non-fictional message, in the same way that the message that a speaker, when they stand on stage on a college campus and invited to stand on that stage on that college campus, uh, it's is trying to transmit a message too. Uh, but the, the people who hate the book bans don't also in many cases condemn the shutting down or the disruptions or the calls for cancellations of the speakers. Um, I don't know if there's something magical about it being written on a page rather than coming out of someone's mouth, but I wish the same ethos um, that criticized the book banning um, also criticized the, the speaker disinvitations or deplatformings. I think the the cap the complicating factor 
that Kat brought up is, is the parents, you know, and when you're talking about anything that's created for the consumption of minors, you know, it, it brings something else into the conversation, which is the responsibility toward children. And so, you know, those things, um, there is a place for curation. I mean, actual curation, which is what librarians do. They decide what's going to be on their shelves and what's not. What's Teachers the same. Yeah. What's age appropriate. And I, it seems to me that we've completely thrown out the the consideration of child development in all of these things. Yeah. And that's, that's some of the nuance that we've at FIRE tried to bring to the conversation, um, you know, within the K through 12 environment, uh, for better or worse, um, curriculum and libraries are controlled by processes, uh, the democratic process. Um, I, I remember the, you put out a short video on, on Instagram about how that process worked. And I thought it was really interesting and helpful for me as an author to understand how those things happen. Yeah. For us, um, you know, there, there is a process for deciding what books go into libraries. Um, it's determined politically often, or pol- oftentimes the decisions are outsourced to the librarians through the democratic and political process. And for us, it, it becomes a concern when whatever pre-established process uh, is usurped for political reasons. Um, like you have from on high someone going around the process that the librarians or school board have in place for determining what books go in the curriculum or um, on the library shelves. Um, and they're and doing it in a politically motivated way. Is it possible that, you know, I mean, I think, again, that video was really helpful because I didn't know that there was a process like that. So maybe uh, you would think that the process is just go and pick it, you know, or, yeah. or shout at the school board meeting instead, oh, there is a really orderly process here that's helpful. But I think, you know, before we even get to that, to the curation process, it's, um, I think we need to take several steps back as creators to to recognize that there there is no you know sort of credentialing system nor nor does there necessarily have to be but maybe something that publishers could do that would be helpful would be to provide resources for writers that are and illustrators that are creating for children to say okay these are some just developmental considerations that you might want to take into account because there's that, but then there's also the bleed over in audience that we started talking about early on where you have a lot of adults that are really, really into young adult fiction and so are bringing their, you know, adult sensibilities into things. And so, you know, the, the most recent kerfuffle with Maya Kobabe's book, right, which was written for an adult audience, but is now being brought into um, some schools, you know, and that really that begs the question, you know, what, where is that line, you know? Well, the line needs to be determined somewhere, right? Like you're not going to put Kama Sutra in a, in a middle school library, but it should probably, or perhaps be in like the public library. I don't sure. know. Sure. Um, and, and so there was this one incident in Oklahoma where a teacher was told that certain books in her classroom couldn't be made available to the students. So she put, I guess, a QR code for the Brooklyn Public Library in her classroom so the students could access it there. She was, I think, fired or otherwise reprimanded for doing so. 
the the discussion about curation on, in the K through 12 environment is obviously more complicated than public libraries and then the ability to buy a book in general is obviously more is it's more straightforward from a free speech advocate's perspective than even the public libraries right like it'd be very concerning for me if some of these pylon campaigns resulted in books that are otherwise available not being available on Amazon right because i don't know the the overlords at Amazon decided that um, a willing audience shouldn't be able to access them. I don't know. Complicated stuff, right? <laughs> I've kept you guys longer than an hour now. Um, any any final thoughts before we sign off here? I mean, Kat, you were in your piece optimistic about the younger generation. It sounds like and the some of the ways that they were um, avoiding the Twitter conversations about some of these books, setting up their own channels to discuss them in a in a way that wasn't tinged with some of these trends. I mean, it sounds like you're less optimistic now. Oh, it's so complicated. I mean, I think that what it comes down to is that you have two completely different audiences. You know, on the one hand, you have people who like to read. And on the other hand, you have people who want to control how books are written. And there is absolutely no overlap between these two groups. Um, the people in the latter category not only don't like to read, but they often just don't read. Um, you know, they they agitate against works that they have not themselves consumed. Um, and it's really about the kind of high of getting an author or a creator, um, you know, or in the case of like Beyonce, a musician, to change their work because they, you know, they, the, the consumer made a noise. Well, um, the Beyonce thing was difficult, right? Because she apologized and agreed to do it. She wasn't forced by a record label. I and mean, we, we looked at that one from Fire's perspective too. And it's like, how do you defend an artist who doesn't want to defend their own stuff, right? Like, well, I mean, I mean, that's, that's such a long conversation. I think it's probably best not to get into it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, we can focus this back on the question of young adult fiction because you have so many cases in which uh, an author has self-canceled their work after one of these pylons. That's actually become the more common thing. For an author who's very much a member of the community and, and has a lot of investment in this idea of kind of literary citizenship, um, and wants to remain in good standing on the sort of social justice left that is in publishing, there is an expectation that when you're called out, you will capitulate. And this does happen. I mean, we've seen it happen um, most recently. Oh, God, what was her name? Alexandra. Ah, I'm not going to be able to remember. She had written a book um, that was called out on Twitter because of the cover. Somebody took, um, took offense to the cover they said, what is this book about? I think it's probably problematic. And she canceled her book. Rather than getting another, I mean, as an illustrator, this is like shocking to me. Like you can always have the illustrator redo the cover. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was that the, the tagline said something about how, um, you know, something was being hidden in plain sight. And then the book itself was focused on, um, I don't know if, if it was a tangential character or the protagonist, but there were Gullah Geechee people in the book, you know, the kind of deep South. Well, no, I mean, we, we had a case like that at fire where this, um, gentleman, Keith John Sampson was a non-traditional student at Indiana university, Purdue university, Indianapolis, which is always a mouthful to say, uh, working his way through college as a janitor and on his lunch break, he was reading this book called Notre Dame versus the Klan. And it's on the cover are burning crosses and people in clans robes and people forget that the clan in addition to being um bigot against black people were all also hated catholics and so they marched on notre dame's campus in the 1920 and this book notre dame versus the clan is about how notre dame defeated the clan 
when they walked on campus. But someone was offended by seeing the robes and the burning crosses. So it was reported to the uh, administration and was found guilty of racial harassment simply for reading a book and simply because someone who had not read that book had judged that book by its cover. And here's the catch. That book was found in the university's own library. And we had, uh, we, we had done what we do at FIRE, which is we write a private letter to the school and point out the outrage and give them the opportunity to resolve it in private. Um, but the university doubled down, and it was only once we wrote about it in the pages of the Wall Street Journal that they backed off. But it's like <laughs> yeah. uh, we talk about judging a book by its cover. But Yeah. So the young adult fiction version of this controversy would have been um, the guy came out and you know made a self-flagellating apology for having read this book in public. And everybody would have agreed that he did this of his own free will and with no concerns about reputational damage or being unpersoned, um, that, and that it was a totally valid outcome, like everybody won. So when this author, I think her name was Alexandra Duncan, I think I finally remembered it, um, when she canceled her own book, immediately all these arguments erupted. Well, she decided to do this of her own free will. You know, like there was no pressure. There was just an author realizing that she'd made a terrible mistake by writing a 50,000 word novel and accepting money for it and expecting it to be published. Um, she just realized that all of this was a terrible error in judgment. And so she pulled the book and that was as it should be. Um, this is such a, a disingenuous argument that I think it's, it's really difficult to engage with it facially. Um, it's, it's really absurd. And so any time that you have one of these incidents where an author cancels or edits or what have you, their own work, um, you really have to zoom out and ask what was the cultural context in which this was happening. Yeah, or the personal context. You know, I've got, I've got a young son, I've got a wife, I've got a mortgage, right? And, I, you know, if I was amidst a cancel campaign and it was the livelihood of not just myself but my family uh, at stake, I don't, you know, I'd like to think I'd have the courage to stand up to it, but I probably wouldn't. I don't know. Um, right. It's not just a decision for myself at that point. So the people who are talking about how well they make this on their, of their own volition. Yeah, I guess it's technically true, but you know, if the, if their livelihood wasn't at risk, would they have made that decision about their art about, as you say, you know, the construction of 50,000 words over many years? Um, probably not. <laughs> yeah, I not. mean, a cat can attest to this too. You know, writing is a labor of love, and I do mean labor. It's very, very hard work. It's all consuming. Um, it takes years to do, and that needs to be taken into account. You know, just how difficult of a job it is. It's not that we do this because it's a nice hobby, or you know, because it's like easy and and stress relieving. <laughs> you know, um, it's very hard work. You know, and. I think that the 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 resolve to not succumb to cancellation it happens by degrees and it has to be small decisions over time to say no I'm not going to capitulate to this because let's let's be honest everything that you just described is basically a struggle session and so you know you have to decide like when when the pressure to engage in a struggle session comes your way you will refuse and not apologize. And that's just, you know, it has to be that. And and does that mean that you're risking reputation and livelihood and everything? Yes. And that's very real. Um, but, you know, we have people like Salman Rushdie to, to look to, to say, you know, he was willing to die 
for uh, his art and his right to express himself and exp- and to say what he needed to say about his, uh, you know, in his time. That, that's a, yeah, I mean, that's a very astute observation about not apologizing. Well, um, also, and Rushdie's publisher was willing to stand by him. They were willing to put that book out into the world and they were willing to, you know, to defend him. I think that, you know, I just want to kind of yes and what Vesper said, which is that, you know, on top of the individual courage of artists and authors and musicians and, you know, anybody who's working in the creative space, institutional support is so huge. Um, so if anybody is, if, if somebody is in a position to make these decisions at like an executive level, at an administrative level, um, to, for, for you to stand by your creator, uh, not your creator as in like God, but as in like your content creator who's working for you, um, that is enormous. And we need to see more of that. You know, if there's, if there's a place where there is still hope, um, it's it's in people being willing to stand up within the institutions that have been otherwise kind of captured by this sensorial impulse and to say, no, you know, we believe in free expression. Yeah, you you have an interesting conundrum because people's first instinct is to apologize. But uh, there have been plenty of studies that shown uh, in these contexts is often the apology is an admission that you're the witch, right? That, and it, and it demonstrates a weakness and it, and it, it's sort of an admission that you did something wrong and then more people pile on. It's blood in the water. Yeah. It's blood in the water for sure. And, and we've seen this in the higher education context, cause that's where we work when there's a call for a professor to be fired or otherwise canceled. Um, and the college administrator or the president in charge, uh, says no and does so in an unequivocal manner. It just goes away. We saw this with Camille Paglia. I think this was like 2017. She was being canceled for some thing or another. Students were demanding she be fired. Uh, and the president of the University of the Arts in Philadelphia said no in an unequivocal manner, manner and then had you know uh, written a peon to freedom of expression and academic freedom, and it just died out. Uh, you see that you saw this at the University of Chicago as well. Um, but that sort of courage uh, is often in short supply. Netflix did this with Dave Chappelle. Uh, you know that the cancel Chappelle phenomenon was short lived because I forget what the name, the co CEO of Netflix's name is, but he essentially said no, and then he wrote into uh, Netflix's uh, company values. Um, a message about artistic freedom and said, if you're not on board with this, you shouldn't work here. Um, it's a very strong message of support. And I think where people get into trouble or institutions get into trouble is when they try to have it both ways. They want to seem sympathetic to the would-be cancelers um, while also protecting the content creators. Um, it just doesn't work that way, uh, unfortunately. So Yeah, I, I just want to add one other thing to this, which is that the more that you say no, the easier it gets, the more comfortable you get just saying, no, I won't compromise my artistic integrity. I'm going to stand by this. I had to do this several times in Berliners. Um, Again, the sensitivity reader was not the issue for me, but within editorial, there was pressure to change certain things and I I refused. Um, And I was okay. And I think that's what artists need to, to hear is that if you say no and you stand by your artistic integrity, you will be okay. You know, yes, things may come your way, but they may not. You, again, it may blow over and you might just be fine. Well, I think that's a good message to end on. Uh, I appreciate you both staying on a little bit longer than I had promised. Um, 
Vesper, I hope folks next week uh, buy a copy of your book. It's out on, I'm assuming it's a Tuesday because books come out on Tuesday, the 25th. October 25th. October 25th. It's called Berliners. And Kat, I hope people not only read your essay, The Toxic Drama on YA Twitter from 2017 uh, in Vulture. I'll link it in the show notes, but also pick up one of your your past books. You had a book come out like a year ago, right? Yeah, well, my next one comes out in January. Oh, congratulations. What's it called? What's it about? It's called You Must Remember This, and it's a sort of a knives out meets the notebook historical thriller uh, on the windswept coast of Maine. Oh, are you from Maine or something? All your books are taking place in Maine? I've spent a lot of time in Maine. I'm not from there, but it's, uh, it's a place close to my heart. So you must remember this is also a title of a podcast that I listened to um, about old Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, which is fairly good. They did one on um, uh, the Manson murders, which was pretty good. Yeah, it's um, a great podcast. Well, oh, so book, you know it? Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, this book centers on um, one of the the main characters is an elderly woman who is losing her memory, um, and so you see her in her her aged and decrepit state. Um, and then you go back in time in a, a tangential, tangential, sorry, no, parallel plot line um, to see who she was as a younger woman and how the decisions she made as a younger woman uh, came back to haunt her in her decrepitude. So are you going to need a um, sensitivity reader who has Alzheimer's or dementia or something? My grandmother de- died of dementia. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's I a actually... Serious problem. You have a, there's a market for your book, um, but I don't know that you're going to find a sensitivity reader up to the task. <laughs> I was going to say it's it's yeah it's a sort of a self defeating thing, isn't it? Well, I yeah. um I I drew heavily on my experiences with my own grandmother for this book. Um, she we uh, we lost her at the very start of the pandemic, unfortunately. So, I thought a lot about her during the long dark period of COVID and while I was working on this book. So it's dedicated to her, and uh, yeah, hopefully people will pick it up. But pick up Vesper's book first because it <laughs> comes out next week and it's amazing. I do not have a copy yet, but apparently it's arriving soon and I'm looking forward to picking it up and I will, of course, uh, put the show, uh, put a link to it in the show notes. So, uh, Vesper Cat, I appreciate you guys taking the time and staying a little bit extra for me. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Twitter, dreaded Twitter. Uh, or Instagram by searching for the handle Free Speech Talk. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We take email feedback. If you have any um, thoughts that you want to share with myself or with our guests, I can forward along your feedback. You can email us at so to speak at thefire.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. They do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all for listening. Mm-hmm.